In this edition of the Embedded Insiders podcast, Brandon and Rich start ramping up for next month's Embedded World Trade Show in Nuremberg, Germany. Later, the Insiders are joined by Tom Doyle, the CEO of Aspinity, to discuss trends in analog computing. Finally, John Labrosse is back with Things That Annoy a Veteran Software Engineer, where he goes off on programmers' use or lack of spaces in their code. And welcome to the Embedded Insiders. My name is Brandon Lewis, editor-in-chief of Embedded Computing Design, and I'm joined by the partner in crime, Rich Nass, who's the executive vice president of Open Systems Media, and he heads up the Embedded Computing Design franchise. How you doing, Rich? I'm fine. I always let you introduce yourself. When I, but when you do the intro, you introduce me and I'll let me speak for myself. Oh, I'm sorry. Would you like to introduce yourself? Well, you already did, so that's fine. <laughs> Well, you know what time of year it is? It is, uh, I would say it's winter, but now that I'm in Florida, it's not winter anymore. <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know how I feel out here in, in Arizona. Uh, no seasons. People complain about the fact that there aren't any seasons, but I'm a native, so I don't really know the difference. And I don't really understand people who would want to live in snow and cold anyway. So, you know, I get by with, uh, with two seasons per year. Um, but actually, the time of year that it is, my gosh, it was just CES, but one month out, Embedded World 2020. Can you believe it? Best trade show of the year. Best week of the year. I love it. The buzz at Embedded World is like no other event that we go to. Yes. the great. It is the greatest trade show in the history of the universe. The greatest show on earth. Yes. <laughs> Um, anyway, but with, you know, with Embedded World coming up right around the corner, um, we're starting to see a lot of uh, activity uh, coming across the wire from companies who are going to be um, exhibiting there. There's, I think, another 1,200 this year, maybe maybe up a little bit from last year. Um, and some of the things that they're going to be showing, of course, you have your traditional um, embedded board, board vendors who will be out in force. Uh, last year, I know that uh, one of the takeaways was uh, more AI or intelligent edge computing um, and security. Uh, what do you think that this year will hold? Well, as you said, last year was, was machine learning and AI, and the year before was very IoT focused, and I think this year is when you put those two things together, when you're doing a lot more AI over the internet, whether it's in the cloud or it's, or it's at the edge. I, I think it's the melding of, of those two things. Yeah, you know, one thing that I've seen a lot more recently is moving from, you know, this is an edge compute solution that has a multi-core processor on it, to this is an edge compute solution that has a lot of IoT connectivity. Um, it supports AI. Perhaps it has some accelerators. Um, there are you know, software frameworks that are being packaged with some of these, um, either boards or boxes that allow people who want to do some intelligent things um, out towards the edge to get up and running really quickly. And I expect to see a lot more of that, um, you know, not in any particular industry, although Embedded World does tend to be uh, more of an industrial show, but, uh, you know, for automotive, uh, perhaps, you know, other transport and healthcare applications, et cetera. The other piece that comes into play there is this moving target seems like it's forever, but when you, when you add 5G in, into the mix, it makes AI in the, in the cloud much more of, of a reality. Uh, and, and I think we'll, we'll see a lot of that in a better world as well. 
I think I think also it, it makes AI at the edge more of a reality because and of course here we're we're gonna talk about you know the, the distinction between edge fog and cloud a little bit, but you know most most sensor nodes that you would think of probably don't have a ton of ability to do significant amounts of AI. However, you could um, have a gateway that's you know a souped up gateway or an on-premise server in say like a factory setting um, that does have the computational horsepower, storage, et cetera, to do AI on-premise. And with 5G being able to you know have that ultra-low uh, latency communication and the improved bandwidth, you could in theory do much more at the edge and then only send that you know whatever's of of, of note. Um, back up into a cloud platform if you wanted. I respectfully disagree. I think some of the processors that we've seen over the last six months or so, we can do some pretty significant AI at the edge. But what we talk about a lot more is uh, machine learning at the edge. There's definitely capabilities to do that now to make the decisions and to make those decisions in, in real time. Yeah, I think maybe we're getting into a semantics thing here because what I, you know, if you have a factory-wide AI, you know, yes, doing some inferencing at the edge definitely is is possible now. But where you really start seeing the benefits of artificial intelligence is it being used to fuse a lot of those different inputs. But you don't necessarily, in some of the applications that we're talking about, want to go all the way back to a cloud. So if you had something that was, you know, the the brains of your you know, automation plant or the brains of your hospital, it would likely you'd have some souped up capabilities running there. Um, and then, you know, the, the bigger AI would exist, you know, for more longer term trends or maybe multiple facilities or something. This is probably a good time to plug a panel session that's taking place in our booth, inferencing at the edge. We're just putting that together as we speak. But uh, That'll take place at, at our booth. That, along with several other panel sessions that'll be at the Embedded Computing Design booth at Embedded World. So um, if you're going to be at the show, make sure that you stop by and check us out. I'm not sure if we actually have the booth number yet, but we'll get that in the coming days and make sure that um, we have enough, we hold the seat for you. Right, Rich? Absolutely. And I guess our next podcast is the... Um, We'll probably doing from Embedded World, right? And then we'll do another one after the post. Oh, we'll do we'll do an, a podcast. We'll do several podcasts before Embedded World. Well, I'm very busy. I don't know if I have time. <laughs> well, I have been known to be able to talk to myself. So, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> yes, they're the most interesting conversations. <laughs> very good. Look forward to uh, seeing everybody there at the show. Now, the Embedded Insiders are joined by Tom Doyle, the CEO of Aspinity, to discuss trends in analog computing. What is driving this renewed interest in, in analog computing? You know, everything's old, what, what's old is new again, back to the future, kind of. Uh, you know, what kicked off Aspinity's interest? If you think about it, all sense data is actually naturally analog, but yet we take all of that data and we automatically digitize it and process it downstream in a digital core. And so just from that perspective, I think there's a lot of focus on how do I, how do I drive in more efficiency in some aspect of, of my signal chain by using the, the inherent low power capabilities of analog. And that's what we see happening as well. And so that's where we focus our efforts in, 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 in bringing that analog capability to bear when we're, when we're looking at these always on sensing products.
one of the biggest drivers for the trend is really efficiency for, for what we call always-on sensing. If you think about the new, you know, the last few years, we've seen an increase in these voice control devices and the idea that I need to monitor glass for glass break or windows for glass break, or I, I need to constantly monitor a machine to know when it's starting to go bad. These are always-on sensing uh, paradigms. And for voice especially, you can't lose any part of the word. Temperature, you can, you can cycle power and, and duty cycle and not really miss any, any change or any problems. But in, in voice systems, you can't miss anything. And for a glass break, you can't miss the time the glass actually is broken. And so you have to remain on all the time. And that's a huge challenge for, for what we call the power of the edge sensor. And so that's what's, what's really driving this. Can we do more within the analog domain, which is closer to, closer to the sensor, and drive in some of those efficiencies? But at some point, you still have to go back to digital to do your processing, right? It, you're not completely in the analog domain 100% throughout the chain. You're, you're absolutely right. And so what, what we're doing is we're adding a new, a new capability, a new step in the process of what we call a new abstract layer. So right after the sensor, you have Aspinity's Ramp Core, which is a machine learning AI core uh, that's there looking at all of the raw analog sensor data. And then when we detect something like glass break or we detect a voice, we would wake up the, the ADC and the DSP, data would get converted, that data is now relevant to the application if you're, if you're thinking of a wake word and now you have voice and now you have a wake word, and then we wake up that system. So absolutely, you still will have those components in the system, but we add a new layer of, of abstraction, very similar to what happens in our, in our brains where we're, we're taking a look at the data to determine is there relevant data. And if not, let's not do anything if there's relevant data. Let's, let's wake up the higher, what we call higher order processing that you typically find in microcontrollers and DSP. Is there any way to quantify the difference between, in power between doing this straight and analog versus a potential digital solution? I mean, absolutely. And we look at it from a system level perspective. So um, if you think about just think about any voice system that's sitting in your house. Let's take a TV remote sitting in your house. It's, and you have to respond at any point in time for someone to say a wake word and then change the channel or turn on the TV or do whatever. So you're processing that as if at any second someone's going to say that wake word. But we know statistically that, what, 19 to 20 hours in the day out of 24 hours, there's actually no voice, no speech at all. And so that, that's where we can calculate, you know, if you, if you assume that five hours of speech and we're going to wake up, we're going to detect that voice, we're going to wake up the DSP that's going to see if someone said the wake word, only five hours, random hours, right, random times throughout the day. So right away, you're able to cut 19, 19 to 20 hours is actually power savings that you're going to achieve. And, and we're able to do that because our core is very low and we sit there with just our core and a analog microphone that's on, always listening, always processing the data in analog. So that, that's, that's quantifying, and that's where we see 10x. We see even greater, you know, greater reductions in power if you think about that glass break demo I said, because it's going to remain on all the time. Uh, the DSP is going to be off, and nobody ever breaks a window. It almost rarely happens, but you have to act like it's going to happen at any second. And that's where the real mm -hmm. efficiency comes in. Very good. Thank you. You know, Tom, you mentioned uh, your RAM core and, you know, how that can be used uh, as basically a neural network processor. And that makes a ton of sense because um, when you think about, 
you know, analog computing and the ability to, you know, do something like multiply accumulates in analog is, is much more straightforward than doing it in digital. You know, when you try to do a multiply accumulate operation on a, on a traditional, well, better be careful how I use traditional in this context, but on a process, on a, a digital processor, that takes up a ton of, of resources. It's really difficult for, for modern processors to handle those types of workloads. But I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about like the architecture of that core, of the RAMP core. You know, what does it look like? Is it sort of like op amps, uh, you know, like constructed in a various way or, or, you know, how is it different from what people are accustomed to today? Yeah, no, and, and I think I think at the surface, the, the first thing we've done is we've architected our core using analog circuitry from the ground up. Now, if you think about, as you mentioned, multiply, accumulate, those are those are pretty traditional structures within a neural network, which have been around for quite a while. And so we, you know, those, if you can implement those, you know, in the base core analog transistors, and that's exactly what we do. And we can do it efficiently and accurately as well. But for us, the neural network is just one aspect of our, our machine learning core. So in front of, you know, one of the first tasks that machine learning engineers do is they do feature extraction. If I'm, if I'm, for instance, building a voice system, I'm going to look at certain features and then feed those into the neural network for decision-making classification and, and whatnot. And so not only do we have an, an analog uh, implemented neural network that operates very similar to what you would find in the digital world, we also have what we call analog feature extraction. And so that can be very precise and very exact in what someone is trying to extract in order to make a decision. And those, are, those two together, we lean more towards the feature extraction, but those are capabilities that, that are available for designers that are designing for our ramp core uh, within our ramp environment. What about accuracy? Is the analog computing as accurate as, as if you're doing in, in digital, which can be super duper precise if, if you go out to a larger number of bits? Exactly. And I think I think that was I a technical term, super duper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good it's a good question, Rich. And and I think, you know, the idea here is, you know, this abstraction layer we talked about. So Let's take vibration for an instance. So what happens is you can be very precise and exact in the, in the data by running an FFT. And so what happens in, when you're monitoring a piece of machinery, you're taking all of this, this data that's analog in its, in its in infancy, you're digitizing it, and you're running an FFT with a DSP to look for specific frequencies and changes in those frequencies over time. And so what you have to do is you have to run an FFT every, every so often you know, how often you do it is really dependent on, you know, on the application at hand. And then you're looking for changes in a fault frequency for a specific bearing. So what we're able to do is be precise enough earlier in the signal chain to, to monitor those very specific frequencies for changes. Now, what we then do is we then wake up the system to run an FFT to get all of the gobs of data that, that one would need to, to them, you know, determine what they want to do next, right? So again, it's a layer of abstraction. The first thing we're doing in a voice system is there, is there a voice there or is there not voice there? We know we can be very accurate because we, we have tested with many voice systems. Um, once we know we have voice, then we can wake up the wake word system that says, oh, I have the wake word or I don't, and I'm going back to sleep until I hear, until I hear the wake word until I get woken up again. You know, Tom, I've got a, I've got a sort of two-pronged question the first is just more of a statement. Um, you know, there aren't a whole, whole lot of analog engineers in the world. 
And the second is that analog circuitry also needs to be calibrated. So, you know, sort of marrying those two together, you know, how is Aspinity and the you know, other other players in the analog computing domain working to sort of simplify um, or you know, make analog computing more accessible now um, you know, that it that it has some potential viability? Yeah, and and I think for analog, you are correct in that um, you know the number of in analog engineers left in the design community is is certainly down from what it was many years ago. But I think from our perspective, one of the key things that we do in the, in our capabilities are that we you don't have to be an, an analog expert. So we happen to have our core fully implemented from the ground up with analog circuitry. We operate with it, raw, unstructured analog data but you don't have to be an analog expert to design or to train a model that runs on our ramp uh, core. So we, we actually bring that up to a high level where, for instance, we use PyTorch as one of our tools for training our glass break demo. And so we bring these capabilities up to bear for, a, say, a machine learning engineer that's able to, uh, to, to, to take, for instance, and, and use existing tools that they're used to build a model and then we we enable the ability to take that model and instantiate it on our core that happens to be all analog and to be able to run and so so these this we bring that that layer and that abstraction level up for the you know for the broad community so that they don't have to be analog experts per se real quick just that while you're on that point does that mean that yeah. you that Affinity provides some sort of you know, compiler or something that you know allows somebody to work in pytorch but then uh deploy that uh that that algorithm that code that net onto your circuitry absolutely yeah so we provide an sdk and we have a dev environment that we provide that that actually does that that work so say for instance you develop a program in, in, in an environment that's linked in our ramp and our ramp sim environment, you can actually build a model and you can test it with your, build it with your training data, test it with your data. And then when you're done and we know that that, that model is actually built to work on our ramp, then we can, we go ahead and compile that into bytecode that's loaded onto the ramp and then it's available for testing in the hardware and then deployable from there. Not only that, we're, we're actually can provide algorithms and updated algorithms to our ramp, even in a deployed environment out in the field. So if it's already in a device and you think, think in terms of like firmware, if you want to update the algorithm to, to, to change some parameter or, or change the hardware so that it, it detects glass break versus voice or an alarm, you can do that as well. And so it is a reprogrammable core. We have ex exposed uh, early partners to that, uh, that design environment. And, uh, and we, we expect to roll that out in the future. So, Brandon, your other, your other question was with regards to the challenges of, of analog. Um, you know, this is really kind of the core to a lot of our innovations is the ability to deal with that variability that, that many have been associated with, with, uh, with, you know, with analog and CMOS. Um, our core is fully implemented with standard CMOS technology. We're not at advanced nodes like some of the digital cores you see out there. And so, you know, we're able to, uh, to deal with the variability, um, and we're also able to do it at, at what we call mature nodes, more mature nodes, uh, that are really geared towards analog. So we, you know, we design not at the, at the advanced nodes like you find with the DSP, but more mature nodes. And what would those, what, you know, ballpark those nodes? 
Is it 40 plus? So, yeah, any, anything above 40, 65. I mean, we go up to, you know, 350 uh, nanometer as well. So we're pretty flexible with regards to our technology and what CMOS processes it works on. I can hardly wait for the next 20 years when we have somebody to talk about some cool innovation in digital computing. <laughs> now it's time for Things That Annoy a Veteran Software Engineer with John LeBras. Well, I think last time we talked about the whole 80-column things, and, and I would uh, like to actually extend that to the next thing that irritates me is the use of spaces or the lack of. Um, case in point, I mean, a lot of programmers, they, they write, for example, a function declaration. They say a data type, a single space, a very, well, a very long data type, single space, a very long uh, very, uh, function name, no space, open parentheses, data type, one space, and so on. So you get the picture so that the use of spaces is very, very small. So what happens is it makes it very difficult to actually read the code. Now, a lot of programmers have told me, well, if you have a syntax highlighting editor, you don't have that problem because all these different elements are highlighted. That's true until you actually start documenting it and putting that uh, in a document where you don't have that same capability unless you're actually taking a picture of, of that coding editor that you use. So, um, so it really drives me crazy to, to, to not put spaces. And one of, the, one of the other argument that comes up is, that well, if you put more spaces between these different things, it slows down the compiler. And I go, are you crazy? Are we, are we, is, is a single space going to make a big difference compared to uh, the long variable name that you use that the compiler will have to search the symbol in the symbol table? It's going to take a lot longer than just the single character that it has to, the single space has to eliminate. Why, what, what is it, why is it such a problem? Put spaces around things. Or for example, um, I've seen cases where uh, a, function, a function is declared, you open the curly brace, you declare the function, you close the curly brace, and the very next line, no spaces, no comment, delimiter, nothing, the very, next the very next line is the beginning of the next function. So, I mean, I'm going through the code and stuff, and, and depending on how the indentation is, is, is done and stuff, it's really, really hard to understand where the beginning and where the end is. Now, of course, if you have a good syntax editor, you'll see those, but uh, why are you p imposing those on the person that's supposed to read the code? Which, in a way, hopefully your intention is that you want the other person that will take over your code to be able to understand what you've done. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Embedded Insiders. For daily industry news, videos, and podcasts, visit our website, embeddedcomputing.com. 